Welcome to Harbor for the Arts, where opera, the performing arts, and creative arts meet lifestyle. I'm your host, opera singer Bree Cooper. I am also a producer, an author, and uh, just an all-around multi-hyphenate. Um, thank you so much for everyone who is tuning in to this podcast today. This episode is brought to you by our partners at Wild Skin Science. Their vision is to lay the foundation for sustainable and responsible beauty and wellness products. Go to wildskinscience.com. You can save up to 75%. And if you use my code Bree. Cooper Metso, you can take an additional 10% off. And uh, I'll leave all of this information in the program notes. Today, we are so thrilled, I am thrilled, to have Dr. Christopher A. Brooks as our guest today. He is a professor of anthropology at Virginia Commonwealth University. He has produced numerous publications focusing on African continental and diasporan experience. He is the general editor of 1,600 page reference work, The African American Almanac, the 11th edition. Dr. Brooks also wrote several major chapters for the volume, including Africa and the African Diaspora, Blues and Jazz, and African Americans in the Military. Mr. Brooks is also a biographer and award-winning musicologist. He collaborated with the late, great opera singer, Shirley Verrett, who we're going to share some memories that Dr. Brooks has. And um, just to give you a little more insight about this amazing singer who was such a trailblazer and, and an inspiration for me. She really laid the bricks for me when I came along and when other singers are coming up behind me. For her autobiography, I Never Walked Alone, the autobiography of an American singer, the inspiring account of her coming of age and rise to success at a time when Black classical musicians faced barriers at literally every turn. Welcome, Dr. Brooks. So glad to have you. Good morning, Bridget. Um, Pleased to be here. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind your book, I Never Walked Alone, and what drew you to um, Ms. Verrett's story? When I was young, uh, my my mother... uh, played the afternoon Metropolitan Opera uh, broadcast on Saturday afternoon. And when I was old enough, I remember, I guess it was around 1970, I remember hearing a performance of Il Trovatore mm-hmm. and Strolleverette was the Azucena in it. And it was something that drew me to her voice. But even before that, I had seen the RCA Victor uh, recording of uh, Gluck's uh, Orpheus or or Orfeo e Eurydice, and there was this striking African-American woman playing Orfeo. And, um, and, and, and I guess even before that, there was a program. I'm from Baltimore, born and raised. There. Oh, okay. Yes. And there was a program on the FM station called from La Scala to the Met. And I first heard the singing, uh, um, her, her singing with George Shirley and uh, Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex. Oh, wow. And then they they uh, referred to her as Shirley Verrett Carter, which was the name of her first ha- uh, husband. 
Well, when I came to realize that Shirley Verrett was the same person, what have you, I, I started following. Now, I first saw Shirley Verrett in 1974 at, uh, um, at Coppin State University in oh. Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And um, this was live, but I had already collected recordings of her uh, by then. And uh, then, you know, that was that was it. So uh, fa- that was in yeah 1974. Fast forward 22 years with me being a parent and so on and, and a professor and what have you. Um, in 1996, she went to University of Michigan, which is uh, my alma mater as well. And I asked one That's of That's where my, my sister went and my nephew. Oh, she, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Go blue. Anyway, <laughs> um, in any case, I asked one of my professors to facilitate an introduction. So he gave me her number. I called her. And it's really funny, Bridget. Uh, uh, one, one Saturday, uh, I came in and there was, there was this uh, voicemail for me. And there was this deep voice. Uh, hello, uh, Dr. Brooks. Um, this is uh, Shirley Verrett. I said, wow. So now, now, mind you, I had seen her in person and on stage and, and, and what have you. But when we spoke, she asked me, well, why do you want to write my biography? And I was able to quote uh, to her something that I, uh, that, that uh, a paraphrase, a quote that she made in Opera News, a magazine that when a black man can sing a love duet with a white woman on stage without people cringing, she said, we will have made it into the human race. So when I quoted that to her, she started talking away then. Oh so my anyway, goodness. I, I knew that that, that was, and, and I, I have to say that um, it was really a um, transformational experience because this was in fact my very first book is this what got you started in writing um so much of the of the journals and publications that you have now is this the well it kicked the books off okay being a professor a tenure professor you know that old adage publish or perish (laughs) 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 but i guess when i found out that she was at University of Michigan, um, I said, okay, this is it. You know, you you either go after it or or bust. And so I did. And she oh, was uh, receptive to it. And, and it was really um, a wonderful experience uh, dealing with her. And I often say if I never did another book like this in my entire career, it would be okay after having worked with Shirley Verrett. And I treasure I'll- that. How long did it take you to write that book? Bridget, I've gotten a little better at it now. Uh, uh-huh. it, 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 uh, um, well, technology has helped too. Yeah, so. oh, yeah, it, it definitely <laughs> has. If only YouTube was around when I was uh-huh. uh, doing this. But I began uh, properly because I wanted to research every single aspect of everything. And I, uh-huh. doubt, and I began that process in spring 1997. And I think it was like... Um, a year or two when I felt that I was at a point where I could actually, maybe a year, when I could interview her because I had collected all of the 
data, mm. views, um, this. I had access to her, um, to her books, her material, her uh, scrapbooks. And so anyway, um, I've, I, I had that. So I had a lot to draw on. And I was even able to call things to her um, um, that she had forgotten. And she said, no, that I said, well, here's, you know, so she's okay, I, I defer. So anyway, that, that was it. But it was a wonderful experience going back and forth um, between um, uh, Richmond and Ann Arbor to, uh, to see her. And that's how we did it. And I taped all of my um, interviews with her. So I still have those interviews. Oh, that's priceless. Yeah, oh, my goodness. Date back to the late 1990s. That is so priceless. Um, how did her love of, it, of music inspire you? Um, just as someone who loves music, you're a musicologist, but you also love anthropology. Yeah, that's right. Well, well, let me tell you that it's not really a contradiction because anthropologists, um, whether you are a, a biological anthropologist, a sociocultural anthropologist, a linguistic anthropologist, or an archaeologist, we tell stories. We tell the story of the human experience. And so I won't dwell on that too much, but it was really a natural blend for me because, again, being trained as a sociocultural anthropologist and, and Africanist, and that's where I did uh, much of my work um, and, and still uh, do, um, it was not really a stretch for me to become a um, a biographer. And that's really, that has been my claim to fame, if you want to put it that way, telling um, the that story. And I am committed to telling the story of that African or African-derived experience, because it oftentimes um, isn't told. And it was the Verrett Project that kind of kicked it off. And as I said, I had such a wonderful time working with her, the other works kind of grew out of, of that. And that, yeah. that was 20 years ago when that book was uh, first published. And it's so needed now. I mean, your connection with anthropology and telling the stories and telling her story, um, there was just so much that I read in the book that I probably forgot along the way because of just years of being in the business. But then reading it, it just made me remember like, oh my gosh, this is, and my dad used to tell me the same thing and about being patient. So what are some of the things that um, a lot of people don't know about with how she dealt with the music world um, because of her race? She always seemed very, I don't know what the word is, it, but but she never really used that racially as an conscious. excuse. Yeah, yeah. She, she was rich, racially conscious. And let me tell you, and prior to that book coming out, what really, and I didn't know it until I um, uh, started working with her. I, as a graduate student at University of Texas at Austin, mm. was active in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. Oh, wow. But I had no idea that Shirley Verrett had been offered lucrative contracts to go and perform in South Africa. Because had she gone... Frankly, I would have felt obliged to withdraw from this project because I was that committed uh, to wow. it. Wow. Uh -huh. But she had turned them down. And when she told me that she had turned them down, Bridget, that moved us to another level, if you will. Yeah. You know, because I said, um, 
not only was she um, a humanist, but she was committed. She was racially conscious as well. And so in any uh, any event, that was a major contributor. You know, that's interesting you say that because something that I've talked to a lot of singers about recently is being able to kind of stand up for what they think is right and what is right and not worry so much about the job because it can get very, um, you know, a lot of singers feel a sense of scarcity when they are in this career and the minute someone offers them a position, even though it might go against some sort of moral thing that they have or something that maybe the opera company agrees with that they don't agree with, but they'll take the contract because they feel like, well, I got to get this job. But the more and more I read about so many stories about, you know, Shirley Verrett and the story of Simon Estes and just talking to more singers these days, like younger singers and how they deal with that. Um, I'm just glad to hear that. And I think that's something the singers today struggle with because there is such a sense of scarcity when it comes to jobs. And you feel like, oh, I'll just have to turn a blind eye and just get the contract, you know, and that's that. But I think it's really important that singers yeah. learn how to be okay with, you know what, I'm going to have to turn down this job because it's not in alignment with what I believe. And it doesn't, it doesn't even have to be this big drawn out thing. It's just, you know, a polite decline. And a lot of singers don't feel like they have the power to do that yet. And in many cases, I understand that. And so um, I, you know, my day job, if you will, is being a university professor. So I have a comfortable salary in order to do it. But I guess if I were raising my family, um, being in the arts or what have you, I don't know. I, I believe that I would have, but um, again, that is a different story, you know, being a parent and now I'm a grand grandfather. Oh, wow. So in, in, any, in any case, I, um, um, I, I take a position based on my principles, beliefs, et cetera. Shirley Verrett was able to do it because she had a big name. Mm -hmm. and uh, reputation and those kinds of things. And that has to be factored in as well. I think there's certainly um, more opportunities for us. Um, now Opera News is devoting a, its February issue to a Black history theme that didn't happen until recently. Yeah. Um, other kinds of things, uh, singers, like it, 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 the, the list goes you know, on and mm -hmm. on and on that you see now. Um, that you didn't see just 10 years ago, the number of us. And I take a, and this is a cautionary note, something that uh, George Shirley told me in the conversation. He, he hopes that it's not just a trend and that will fade into when some of the uh, Me Too and Black Lives Matter uh, has uh, died down, um, that that will fade as well. And it's up to individuals like you and me and others who have a voice uh, to uh, maintain it. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And that's always in the back of my mind. But I also feel like if each one does something that contributes to carrying on the legacy of so many, in this case, opera singers that really fought the good fight as far as, you know, making sure that I had an opportunity 
And then it's up to me also to make sure that other singers of color, uh, any color, and especially being African-American, um, have opportunities as well. And how can we create those opportunities? Because it's not just a matter of, oh, I have to go get this job. I need to audition. I, I didn't get this job. It really is a matter of how are we going to create our own um, net worth of, of opportunities. And I know that that's something that, that's very important to me. Ms. Verrett's message of perseverance in a field where she was marginalized, um, it impacted so many singers like we just talked about, um, and it paved the way for singers like me. How do you think this message is resonating now with younger generations, and especially singers who really did not learn much about her in music? Um, or maybe they listened to her in music history, or maybe their voice teacher told them about it. But nowadays, uh, I don't know how much is really taught about a lot of these singers. Yeah, that that is a ongoing, um, I'll call it an ongoing process, struggle, whatever uh, adjective you want to use. Um, I personally feel committed to keeping that legacy alive, that Shirley Verrett legacy and every opportunity that I get to speak about her, I will I will take it. I think the book goes a long way. There is a a French Shirley Verrett fan club there. I have not met the person, but he and I uh collaborate uh, uh in terms of when something shows up. YouTube has frankly gone a long way in keeping that name um current. If you plug in Shirley Verrett, you're going to pull up a whole lot of uh, material. It's easier to find that material. And I was joking a little earlier what it would be like. Uh, had YouTube been around when I was working with her on this book and just pull this up or pull that up. And yeah, it it, it would have, uh, you know, I, it, it would have been longer, you know. So the message, how do you do it? It's ongoing. It's an ongoing process. What we are doing is one way what uh, others who remember her, um, our uh, agent at the time passed away last year, who was to mm -hmm. uh, keep that name. And that's part of my general commitment to help tell or in some cases retell that uh, uh, that story. I know during Black History Month, I thought it was important for me to, especially with TikTok, you know, I find that that is enough bite-sized information for a lot of people to become curious about. So for the entire Black History Month, what I did, and this is how I found you, actually. What I did was I, I every day I was just like, okay, I'm going to highlight an African-American singer um, who has made a significant contribution to the world of music. And maybe a lot of people don't know them. For me, I decided to use people that, um, or singers that I no were forgotten. You know, a lot of people don't know. Um, Shirley Verrett was one that, of course, I know. A lot of singers know her. A lot of African, African-American singers know their African-American singers. A lot of people didn't know about her. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I shared the video and I remember getting so many, so much feedback. And a lot of people were like, who is this? I've, I haven't heard her. You know, I, and I said, go look her up. Here's the link. And then when I was doing research um, and I found the website and I saw your book and I was like, 
oh my gosh, how come I have not <laughs> spoken to him at all? So I wanted to just kind of uncover that story. And I'm so grateful that you were so receptive to me reaching out because I, I, I have no problem reaching out to people. And I, it's so funny because I'm like, people are going to think I'm a kook or a stalker no or something like that. So I know Miss Miss Verrett probably experienced so many negative challenges in her life. And, you know, publicity always makes it sound like everything's so easy. Um, so how does she navigate some of these challenge and what challenges and what can we learn about her resilience and perseverance? Shirley Verrett had a very strong family background, a religious background, her uh, family was Seventh-day Adventist. She was born in um, New Orleans. And uh, the family moved when she was about 9 or 10 or 11 to California. So that's where she grew up. Uh, I think that the family background prepared her in many ways for a lot of this. She came, her parents were born in the early 20th century, her she knew her uh, paternal grandparents, uh, um, and who were even earlier, and I think that they gave, I think they gave her a strong sense of self, who she was, and her significance as an African American. That's the term that we use today, and so uh, with all of that, I think it was really uh, very good for her. It was a protected environment. The parents were very um, careful about who she came in contact, particularly when they were in the formative years. She married in many ways to get away from that overprotectedness, as she saw it. Um, a, a man, she was about, maybe about 19 or 20 or thereabout, but that turned out not to be a good relationship. And after she moved to New York, she eventually divorced him and, and later met um, her husband, who was the love of her life, Lou Lomonaco. And, um, and so she had him there. To a degree, the fact that Lou Lomonaco was uh, an Italian-American, uh, he was in a position to see certain things that her eye did not catch and knew that there was a problem. And he would come to her uh, or confront her and say, well, well, wait a minute, this is my wife. You will, have, uh, you, you will not treat her this way. And, and so they, they really formed a team. Now, everyone doesn't have that, uh, um, but in her case, she did. She, when there was, she, when there was the opportunity for her to um, integrate, she did so. When there was the opportunity to, for, her, for her to insist on having African-Americans in this or that or, or what have you, she did so. So that's why I'm saying um, she was race conscious. Yes. So uh, as her name grew, and again, she attributes that to her husband who said, you really need to have publicity, a PR person. And that went a long way um, for her as as well. So in any case, that was a combination of things and things kind of aligned uh, for her. She would even say when I came along, although I had met her years earlier, she often said, that God put us in each other's path. And I found that to be very, um, I found that to be 
uh, very prophetic in many ways because um, I, I, you know, I was a tenure professor, but I, you know, I didn't really have a, a name or anything like that at the time. As I said, you know, that's why I said this uh, relationship was transformational. Uh, but it did launch me in a number of ways. So I even have to credit her that she took a chance on a young African American professor and that I would be the person to tell this story. So anyway, I'm grateful to her for that. Well, I also think that um, people kind of pick up on that. People pick up on sincerity. People pick up on honesty. People pick up on um, authenticity. But she could um, be outspoken. I, I don't want to uh, 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 let leave you with the impression that she like was just smoking violent. She was like, <laughs> <laughs> but she was human, so I know she wasn't the same. <laughs> That's what we're going to get into next. <laughs> That's what I want to hear, some juicy stuff. <laughs> keep it, as my daughter says, let's keep it a buck. Okay. So one of my favorite patches from the book um, and is where she was saying, you know, let things take care of themselves. Work hard, do what you can do, do as much as you personally can do for your craft, but let things take care of your of themselves. And she mentioned the saying that we talked about earlier, which she heard from a teacher and um, the teacher said, uh, hurry slowly. Right. Um, do you think that- was Hall that... Johnson. Yeah. Oh, was that Hall Johnson? That was, that was Hall Johnson. No. Yeah, Hall Johnson said, hurry slowly. And in other words, make See, sure so that you do me. the work. Oh my God. Do that work. Do what it uh, uh, to prepare what you need to be um, um, so that when you step in, when that opportunity presents itself, you are fully ready to take advantage of it. So that was yeah. the, the hurry slowly. Um, oh, yeah, my so, gosh. Yeah, John, and she worked with uh, uh, Johnson and she worked with him when he was in California. Um, okay. And he he told her, he said, well. Once you go to New York, that's going to be it. You're not going to come back to California. They're going to keep you in New York. And, and you know, he made, uh, you know, that prediction. Now, uh, 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 what uh, many people don't know is that Paul Johnson uh, was fluent in uh, several languages as well. Particularly no, a lot of people don't know that. In French. Oh, he was fluent. Yes, Absolutely. So in, in any case, yeah, that, that was it. And he coached her on a lot of the leader because mm. he said, we, we associate Hall Johnson with the uh, African-American Spiritual. spirituals, but she, he, he mastered that German leader uh, as, as well. And he coached her in Brahms and, and several French things for that matter. Mm. Yes. Um, one of the, other passages that I read is where she said, you must see where you stand in the world. If you are not honest with yourself, many mistakes can be made along the way. What are some of the moments where, where Ms. Verrett um, was about to draw, you know, had to realize that some of the things that she thought may have been a mistake? Oh, she, she was very open about speaking about summer, which is, I think, why that book uh, gathered, you know, uh, uh, the attention that it did. Mm -hmm. She said that she thought that she was a higher level than she was when she was with RCA. Mm -hmm. And RCA 
she wanted RCA to record her, uh, record Carmen with her. But see, RCA just a few years early had released Carmen with Leontine Price singing uh, the role. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to produce another Carmen to bump heads with that so soon. So she said, well, if you don't, I'm going to leave, you know, and, and she did. And she came to say that that was a mistake for her because uh, had she stayed with RCA, um, they recorded Il Trovatore, in which she would have sung uh, sung um, um, Azucena. Mm -hmm. uh, they did Aida, with uh, or both with Leontine Price, she would have sung uh, Omniris, both roles that she controlled during her and other things. But she said because she wasn't um, under that label, um, she was kind of a free agent. Now she recuperated when um, she because she she recorded with um, uh, Deutsche Grammophon with ABC and several others and and what have you. But RCA at that time was a major opera recording uh, label, and she feels that that was a major area. But the big mistake she made, and she she readily admits it, is that she was doing a performance in Europe, I believe, it was in Italy of a um, Macbeth. And she lost her voice, attempted to go on stage speaking the role in the oh, Italian. Wow. And after a few minutes, the, the audience realized something was wrong. And they, you know, started, you know, uh, uh, protesting and she walked off. And she really feels that that was one of the biggest mistakes that she ever made. And um, was in she her. pressured into doing that or did she say? I, I honestly never really. She just said that her she her head got full of it. And she said, OK, no, let me try to salvage something and went out there and tried to speak the role. And um, and it, 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 it really turned out uh, very badly. But she really, um, she said that she is her term. She said that was stupid for me to do that, you know. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. fortunately, she recovered. And 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 because there was enough of a reputation and it was a big name, et cetera, she recovered from it. Um, but again, that 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 particular incident she referred to. Yes, absolutely. I want to touch on Norma. She was really um, impacted by Maria Callas. Is that That's correct? Right. That's and right. I think was it her performance of Norma that she saw? She saw Maria Callas do Norma in 1956 when uh, Callas was uh, there uh, at the Met and Shirley Verrett was a student uh -huh. at Juilliard. And she recalled, oh, sorry about that. Uh, okay. She recalled... Uh, um, Collis coming on stage almost in a regal position. And even when she started singing Collis, she said that, that the, the wobble was there. But she said because the drama of the role, she got over that. She she just kind of ignored that. That experience she remembers. And when she first did the role and uh, she she just kind of reflected back on that. And that was, in fact, her favorite role. Yeah, Bellini's really? Norma. Yes, Bellini's it's so interesting because when I read about that, I was just like, "Oh wow, she kind of fangirled over her." You know, mm -hmm. she was like a fangirl. Oh um, yeah, and she met her too. She oh, she really? met Ray Callas in the nineteen seventies. Um, I think there there was uh, Shirley Vrett and Montserrat Caballé were mm -hmm. performing, and there was a strike or something, and it may have been Norma uh, that they were doing in Paris, and there was a strike, and they got an opportunity 
to have um, dinner with Maria Collis. And, and that was it. So Shirley Verrett did uh, meet uh, Maria Collis in Paris. Um, what's something that uh, really surprised you about your, well, first of all, when did it turn into, you know, you guys had a, such a special relationship. So when yes. did it go from something very professional to something like, wow, you know, we're, we're friends. We're, we're really friends. You can, you seem like, I know you care so much about her. I love that you, you gave me a reminder, like she's going to be on the Met rebroadcast radio program. Of, what was it? March 4th, I think, right? Something, 5th, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was wonderful. Like um, but when did you feel that kind of transition into, oh, wow, we're, she calls me, we're buddies. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can't I do remember us um when when I told you that she had said no to performing in apartheid South Africa, but it it was a gradual process of, and and um you know I hosted her here at my home. Um she's met my family, uh, uh one of my children, even before the book came out, I was kind of managing things for her. Okay. When an offer would come in for a master class or something like that, she would refer them to me. She would offer me money, and I said, "Absolutely not. I won't take a cent." You know, I just it it just wasn't it didn't seem right to do that. Now, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and th there was an interview that she did. I believe it was with Tavis Smiley, um, and when she said that. Had Christopher Brooks been around at the time, she said my name would have been even bigger because I guess I was kind of looking after her interests and, and yeah. anyways, telling a venue, could you please have so-and-so? Could you give her this kind of room? Would you be um, able to do so-and-so or what have you? Everything was polite. There was no, no um, this is Charlorette or anything right. like that. But it was, uh, and so I, I, I think that when she trusted me, to handle those kinds of things that moved us to yet another um, level. One engagement, I forgot, it was somewhere in the Midwest and she canceled it. Okay. I said, Cheryl, look, I got, I did a lot of work on this. She said, I, I, I can't because I made a mistake. There was a student giving a recital and she needed to be there for a rehearsal. I, I said, okay, look, I, I mean, I was bent out of shape, you know, to put it mild. I All said, that okay, work look, that you put into it. I said, I am not going to call them to cancel this. You're going to need to do that. You know, so she did. And so anyway, that was it. She apologized to them and, and what have you. But I think that's what kind of moved us to yet another level because um, I um, took on a managerial role. Um, even when we did a book signing at the Met, they contacted me. I guess that she trusted me and trusted my judgment uh, and and it was beyond just a me being her biographer and what have you and that's that's why I said it was really a transformational relationship and plus she didn't want anything from her you know what I mean like I, so yeah, many people at, at, her, at her level I'm sure and, and I'm sorry to interrupt it was a labor of love Bridget yeah, yeah just to, yeah it, it it really was so yeah. anyway she happened to have the same birthday as my mother May 31st oh. At uh, once, even more special. <laughs> she, even more special. Yeah, so that was that was it. But she got to meet my family and what have you. They knew her and 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 what have you. So anyway, that was a part of it. Um, but you're very honest with her, and especially the part where you know, sorry, you're gonna have to call them. <laughs> yeah. Oh you're yeah. I 
I got everything. Well, okay, thing. we have reached a new level. This is class flight, you know. So, but she I did love it. That, that I love it. it. <laughs> um, and my university you... also gave her an honorary doctorate, and it was one of several that she received over the course of her uh, career. Uh -huh. <laughs> what do you think singers will? What do you want? Not only singers, but the general public to take away from this amazing, beautiful book. That this was, um, Leontine Price, of course, was a great name and still is, but there were many others in that tradition. Um, and Shirley Verrett was um, among that, uh, that class of world-class singers who um, I came to know as a human being, mm -hmm. as a wonderful person, mm -hmm. and mostly to communicate that, that this mm -hmm. was a story worth knowing, worth telling. And um, it, is a, it is an American story as well. I love it that. is a part of the American experience. African-American, um, yes, but it is still a part of our experience in this country. So this was from Reflections of a 50-Year Journey. This was done at the Color of Music. Okay. This um, was a Pergolesi aria, Serpe Lintata Fede, um, that uh, her accompanist at the time, Warren Wilson, discovered them and they brought them back to the public again um, in the uh, early 1970s. And she did this work in the performance um, uh, when I first saw her in recital in Baltimore. I've always been amazed at how her voice is so fluid. It just moves so easily yes. for it to be a bigger voice. Yes, and, and, a lot, and, and she did have that facility with coloratura and yeah. Yes, and uh, to for that voice, you know, at that size to move the way that it uh, it did. Yeah. Thank you. 
Well, with some of the repertoire that she started out singing so that she could achieve this flexibility in her voice, because I think so many teachers hear a big voice and they start them on the big, heavy, dramatic music early. Started out doing religious uh, uh, things in the Seventh Day Adventist Church, uh, uh, hymns and what have you. When she studied professionally, she did um, Italian. Um, uh, some teachers thought that, and she started out as a soprano initially. But when her teacher at Juilliard, uh, Madame Freshel, um heard her, Shirley Verrett did uh, the Arthur Godfrey show in, in 1955, as I recall, and she was still married to the first husband. And she did the aria Mon Cor Souffrant Tavoir um, from Saint-Saëns et Dalila. And mm -hmm. she, the, the, the performance went over very well, but it was that when uh, Madame Freshel, Marion Freshel heard her, she said, mm, I think that that's more of a mezzo sound, but she, she, she deferred to this uh, master teacher and developed that repertoire, mm. but then later uh, moved into the soprano repertoire. So that was it, yeah. So um, the light things. Mm -hmm. Paul Johnson taught her the German leader, um, and there were several other influences there, but yeah. But she, she started as a recitalist, and then um, moved to being an opera singer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think one of the stories that she shares in her book was uh, about her being married for the first time. And she, I think she was working in a law office or something, or she was working in an a office. realtor. She was working a as realtor. a realtor. Yeah. And she had one of those, I guess, come to Jesus moments where she was just like, <laughs> this is not it for you. She said, I need she to be pulled herself together, found a teacher. She was just like, I'm out of here. <laughs> so That's to speak. I mean, I know it didn't go that way, but. <laughs> That's how my close. mind, like. It was close, though. Yeah. <laughs> When I read books, that's how I always have these conversations in my head. Like, I'm like, I can only imagine, because how many singers have had that same conversation? You're doing mm -hmm. an office job, and it's just like, you know darn well, you're supposed to be out there singing, figuring it out, and doing it. Yeah. So it wasn't close, it wasn't far from that. No, that's what I related to <laughs> it with. I was just like, oh my God, I, I know those days. <laughs> And she did have a sense of um, of a dynamic, um, but I I um I was once asked how would I describe her in uh, or her singing in one word, and I I, I thought intense because it was always you know she was always uh, there and when I first saw, but I I guess I would say committed because um, the, the, there's a recording of Anna Bolena when she's singing the role of Jane Seymour, that big aria, and in the um, cabaletta of the aria, it's the, the singing 
Dio rigore sentenza il re and it's it's just so so intense. And I asked her about that. I said, what was going on? What was in your what was happening when you were uh singing it? She said, I was just committed, you know, to the words and what I was singing. So that was it. So anyway, that's why I would say committed. So I know you have to run. Thank you so much for sharing Shirley Verrett's legacy with us and your accomplishments as well, because none of this would have been possible um, to, for, to hear this story. I mean, I happy love it. it. Thank you so much. And um, if anyone would like to get a copy of the book, I will put it in the show notes below. But again, it is I Never yes. Walked Alone. And I'll put it in the show notes, but it is available on Amazon. And yes. where else? Is any any other outlets? At, um, if someone asks me or writes me about it, I'll just tell them to go to Amazon. Yes. Okay. Okay. And where can people get in contact with you if they'd like to reach out My, to you? I'm a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, in anthropology. And you put my name in and you'll find me. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for spending a long time with us today. Now, remember, if you're listening to this pod podcast audio, you will not be able to see the slideshow or on my website, you'll be able to see um, the portion of the slideshow as well. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you to our, our sponsors for today's podcast, which is Wild Skin Science. Go to the website, wildskinscience.com. They are having a 75% off sale. And if you put in my code, Brie Cooper Menso, B-R-I Cooper Menso, you will get an additional 10% off. So thank you again, Dr. Brooks. Do you have anything else you would like to share? or? Well, just thank you. And, and I am happy to have shared this with your, with your fans, with your um, um, followers. So thank you again for joining us.